Guys, that was awesome. Thank you. So when we talk, when we talk about encounters, we talk about encounters. Encounters um, usually have an element. Whoa, is there any way we could get less? Like, yeah, seems awfully echoey. Um, all right, when we talk about encounters, we talk about encountering Jesus in chapel, that that's the purpose of what and why we are here. Um, and encounters usually have an element of the unexpected, right? Um, it's different than meeting someone. You encounter someone, there's usually an unexpected element to it. Um, Los Angeles is a prime place for encountering people. Um, in like being specific, encountering um, famous people and celebrities, people that uh, you don't expect to bump into or hang out with or have uh, face-to-face interaction with. Um, where I was in Pasadena, you know, Hollywood's close and Burbank and Glendale, and you never know who you're going to bump into, what the context is going to be. So um, bumping into Mel Gibson at, at Disneyland, um, bumping into Tony Hale, who plays Buster on Arrested Development in a, in a bookstore, um, running into Reese Witherspoon a couple of different times, and she is a tiny little human being, like five feet tall. Um, Blake Griffin, um, Clippers basketball player, and he is not a tiny little human being. He is a massive human being. Um, but my favorite, my favorite encounter, and this was a, a fairly intimate encounter, was with Rihanna. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm at a Clippers basketball game, and and I. Um, was with a buddy who had really good seats. Billy Crystal was sitting right in front of me, like literally right in front of me. Um, but I go to the bathroom, and I'm ready to go like to the normal bathroom, and my friend Jim's like, no, we don't go to those bathrooms. We go to that bathroom over there. So you walk along courtside, and you go down underneath, and you go to the bathroom. So I go in guy's bathroom. Um, I use the restroom, and I come out of the bathroom, and I did this. I come out of the bathroom, door, turn, boom, and right here, right in front of me is Rihanna like probably seven or eight inches. She also is not a huge human being. She's a small-ish human being. So we're face-to-face, and this is what Rihanna said to me. And I quote, that's what she said. (laughs) And, And my response was, and I quote, Then I walked around Rihanna, and she went to the bathroom. Um, then I did see her walking courtside. Poor, like, you know, uh, Lake, uh, Clippers basketball game, there are, like, lots of people there. Billy Crystal's there. Um, uh, uh, who's the, um, the boxer? Floyd Mayweather's there, like, in a big cowboy hat. No, everybody's chilling. Like, everybody's like, oh, nobody's a big deal. And then Rihanna walks by the court, and everybody stands up and taking pictures. And So I don't know what it is about her. But anyway, that was our intimate interaction. Um, so... Uh, interacting with those people like that, though, I learned nothing really about them, really. Um, although there are encounters we can have with people where we do learn great deals about them, right? So when I encounter my father in stories about his childhood, I learn a great deal about who he is as a human being. When I encountered my wife in stories about how her parents were both sick and how she sort of walked through them being sick in high school and college and, and them dying from illnesses, you learn a great deal about people. Um, these are encounters that teach us more about people that we know. 
And encountering Jesus in the Scriptures is that way. It teaches us a great deal about this person, about our God and our Savior that we know. And it's also incredibly relevant and important that we do it on a regular basis because it does calibrate our hearts to live in this world. We're going to look at a passage this morning out of the Old Testament, and over the course of this semester, we're going to be looking at passages where we encounter Jesus in the Old Testament. And some of those encounters are somewhat unexpected, but they give us deep insight to who he is and who our Savior is and how he impacts and relates to us on a daily basis. Um, This morning's passage is particularly, I think, important and timely because I think not new to the church, but something that, that I see and experience in myself personally is something that Bonhoeffer called one of the great enemies of the church. And it's this idea of cheap grace. It's an idea that we don't truly understand the costliness of the grace that's extended to us in Christ. Bonhoeffer puts it like this. It's really clear and cogent. He says, this cheap grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which the showers of blessings come on us with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is this, that the account has been paid in advance, and because it's been paid, everything can be had for nothing. We live in a a world where it's very easy to be both autonomous, living for ourselves, and anonymous, living quietly, where no one sees, no one hears, no one knows. It's very easy to live a Christian life that is fragmented or put into boxes, where we come here and we do this, and we clap and we sing and we praise, but then we figure out how to box our lives off so that it's okay to later this evening go home and spend a couple of hours looking at pornography, or it's okay to be having sexual relations with your girlfriend, or it's okay to drink and get drunk on a weekend, and it's okay to get high, and we... we, break out and compartmentalize our worlds. And I think that, being very honest, one of the ways that that's very easy for us to do is when we have a very cheap understanding of grace. But Scripture is really clear that grace is not cheap at all, that grace is incredibly costly. And we're going to encounter it this morning as we look at um, Jesus in Genesis 3 and the judgment of Adam and Eve. So, uh, we'll bounce to Genesis chapter 3, give a brief overview of kind of what's going down, and then we'll look at at the the passage that I want to spend some time in. Um, Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. They have communion with him, they have peace with him, and he makes a covenant with them, a covenant of blessing if they are faithful and if they follow him and if they maintain relationship, and then also a covenant of curse. He promises that death will come if they disobey his commands. Not an if you don't do what I say to do, I'm going to kill you death, but if you do this, it will result in death entering your lives and the history of the world to come. So God gives them positive commands, right? He says, be fruitful, increase, multiply, fill the earth. He says, till the garden, take care of it and protect it. So he gives them these positive commands, but he also gives them negative commands. And the negative commands center around a tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is what God calls it. But that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not a tree that is somehow going to give them the knowledge of good and evil. It's a tree where they are supposed to exercise what they already know about good and evil. 
because Satan is going to show up at the tree. And God has deemed that's the place where they will exercise what they already know is good, God's commands, over against evil, anything that questions or calls into question or challenges what God has said is good. So this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Satan does in fact show up. He does in fact tempt them. And when he tempts them, Eve sees that the fruit is good. She thinks it's going to increase her knowledge. She eats. She gives some to Adam, who's with her. They both eat, and they fall. And then, Scripture tells us they do something very interesting. Um, They now feel something that they've never felt before. They feel guilt, and they feel shame, and they feel nakedness. Their eyes see the world differently. They see each other differently, and they see God differently. So they cover themselves with leaves, and they hear something. They hear God coming in the garden. And with him is going to come the death that they know he has promised will result from their actions. So scripture says that they hide among trees. And here's what they heard, right? Um, In most of our translations, it says that uh, the Lord God came walking in um, in the garden in the cool of the day. A better translation for that, and one that um, gives a clear picture of what's actually happening. God is not coming wondering where Adam and Eve are. He's coming in a theophanic cloud of judgment. He's coming in a glory cloud. And the scripture, when translated properly, should read, um, Adam and Eve heard the thunder of the Lord God as he was going back and forth in the wind of the storm. And that's a picture of what took place. God comes in judgment and glory, and he settles down on the garden, and you can almost feel the darkness coming. And Adam and Eve, now knowing what's coming before them, run, and they hide in the trees. Well, Scripture tells us that God does not execute them immediately. Instead, he calls out to them. Um, He calls out to them, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I heard you coming and I was afraid because I did the one thing you said not to do. And I feel the guilt and I feel the shame and I'm hiding because I don't want to face the consequences. And it sounds a lot better to say I'm naked. And we see Adam totally exposed before God, both physically and spiritually, and he's afraid. He's afraid before God, which is now the new response of humankind before a holy God, fallen and sinful people before a holy and perfect God. Then God questions both of them as to what happened. Adam blames, uh, let's see, Eve blames, Adam blames God for putting Eve in the garden, blames Eve for giving him the apple, Eve blames Satan, and after Adam and Eve speak, um, Satan is not given a chance to answer what he did, and God speaks judgment from the cloud of glory. He addresses Satan, and then he addresses Adam, then he addresses Eve. And I want to sit for a minute in his response to Satan because we are going to encounter Jesus in the judgment that God proclaims on the devil. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The angel who chose to inhabit the form of a snake in the garden, the beginning of God's judgment upon him is simply this you will be ultimately and forever humiliated. Like the snake is prostrate on the ground, you too will be prostrate on the ground forever, eating dust 
as an illustration of his humiliation. And all those who follow in your line will do the same. And then he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head, or shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then God gives a glimpse of the world that's to come. Everything has changed, and the history coming will be a world of two seeds representing two kinds of people fundamentally at odds with each other. There will be the woman's seed, those chosen by God, the people of God. And then there will be the seed of the serpent, those who follow in the likeness of the serpent and who continue in devil likeness. And scripture says that a day will come when the enmity, when the the enemies that exist between those two seeds will result in an encounter between the serpent and one of the woman's descendants where the serpent is crushed by the heel of a man and ultimately defeated. But he will be a special descendant. A normal human being can't destroy the angel serpent. So in God's narrative of what's to come in the fullness of time, in this picture of the beginning of the unfolding of history, what life is going to look like when they're cast out of the garden, Jesus Christ is at the very center. He is the Messiah. He's the anointed one, the one who will deliver the death blow to Satan. He's the one who's going to overturn the curse of death that is being proclaimed now, and he will restore relationship between God and man. He is the one that's going to crush the serpent's head, but it won't be without a wound. God says that the serpent will bruise his heel. So there, in the judgment spoken upon the serpent, we encounter Jesus. We also know that this word of offspring, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, Drop back just a minute and imagine how this would have been heard by Adam and Eve. God's come in judgment, and they know what he said judgment is going to be. It's going to be death. You're going to die as a result of your disobedience. But in the judgment spoken on the serpent, there's a word of offspring of the woman. And you can imagine the hope that is sparked just a little bit. Are they actually going to be allowed to live? Are they actually going to be allowed to have children? So God speaks about the judgment on them. There's hope. Death has come into humanity, but they are actually going to live. They're going to be alienated from God in a way. They're going to be alienated from the garden completely, alienated from each other to a degree. But they have hope. And in hope, Adam acts, and he almost celebrates by naming his wife Eve the mother of all who will live. And then we're told that the scripture says that the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And here we're going to encounter Jesus even more fully. The father looks at his children and he sees them exposed and guilty and ashamed. And their physical nakedness and their homemade clothes are external pictures of a spiritual truth. So God makes clothes from animals, and he is the one that clothes them. And the message is clear. In the same way that they can't clothe themselves physically, they can never cover themselves spiritually. So God does it. God clothes Adam and Eve. And the clothing that he provides requires the sacrifice of life. So God, who's the creator, he's the sustainer and giver of life, 
he sacrifices one of his own creations that he might make clothes for them and cover them. In the same way that he will one day sacrifice not one of his creations, but his own son, that they might be covered, that we might be robed, and that our spiritual nakedness might be covered. God, the life giver, is going to require sacrifice. That will be the cost of victory. The defeat of death will require suffering, and it will require sacrifice. And that suffering and that sacrifice is already pointed to here in Genesis 3. That suffering and that sacrifice will take place at the same exact location that Adam and Eve hid when God, when they brought death into the world. Uh, They hid from God at a tree. They hid under a tree from God. But instead of being under a tree, Jesus will suffer at and on one. So you can almost picture, if you will, like kind of doing a a parallel here, and I think it's kind of cool, right? You can picture the darkness falling on the garden as the storm cloud of God comes, as judgment comes for Adam and Eve, and they hide. And in the midst of it, they find hope in God's mercy. In the same way, the darkness fell on the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour when Jesus hung on the cross, and that gave way to a greater hope as the serpent's head was finally crushed. The curtain of the temple is torn in two. The earth shook, and Scripture says that the rocks split apart as man again had access and relationship to the Father. So here in Genesis chapter 3, in a curse pronounced upon the evil one, the deceiver, Satan, we encounter Jesus Christ. We hear what life is going to be like after the garden. We hear about these two seeds, the seed of the man, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. And we see it played out in all of history. But it points to sacrifice. It points to the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the chosen one, the only one who could cover our sin and our nakedness, the only one who could restore our relationship with God. So when we talk about grace, I think we live in a world of cheap grace. I know that my view of grace is often not as costly as it should be. But in order to understand the costliness of grace, I think we have to know the one who extended the grace to us. We have to know the sacrifice in order to understand the costliness of the grace that is given to us. Does that make sense? If you think about, if you needed a heart transplant and you knew that there was a store full of hearts and all you had to do was simply pick a heart and get a heart transplant. That's one thing. But if you needed a heart transplant and you got to know the person who was going to die and give you their heart, you spent time with them, you saw how they loved, you saw how they interacted with people, you got to love them, and then they die and you're given their heart, the costliness of the grace and the mercy that's extended Bonhoeffer said this about costly grace. He said, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly. Let's hear this. This is so good. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it cost a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. 
It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought for a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So I want to leave you just with one more thought, a final way to think about this costly grace and a reminder. Adam and Eve, as they're wearing these skins, right? Um, I don't know if anybody's ever put on an animal skin or worn like a skin that's been cut from an animal. But you are very well aware that you are wearing a skin. And I'm also guessing that God didn't do an incredibly thorough tanning job on this. I'm guessing that as Adam and Eve were clothed in the skins of the animals, that the blood was always there. That every time they put them on, they knew that what they were covering themselves with cost life. Because the blood was there. We are robed in the righteousness of Christ. We literally have robes of righteousness that Jesus purchased with his blood. As we encounter him and see the depth and the cost of the grace that's extended to us, I pray that we will be reminded, just like in Adam and Eve, every time they considered the clothing that they had, they knew that it cost life. I pray that we too, every time we consider the grace that's extended to us, the life we have in Christ, the forgiveness in sin, the community of brothers and sisters that we live with, that we remember that it comes costly price, the price of the Son of God who shed his blood for us that we might be covered, that we might be made whole, that we might have relationship with God, the Father, and with one another. If we can encounter Christ like that, if we can see and know the sacrifice, then grace will become costly. And costly grace will change everything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us when we tread your grace under our feet. When we act like it costs nothing when we justify in our own hearts and minds lives that are fragmented, compartmentalized, where we accept grace readily but treat it as if it cost nothing. Help us, Lord, please, to encounter Jesus, to know him, that we might see the full cost of the grace that's extended to us, that it might transform us, that it might make us love you even more than we ever knew possible. Please, Lord, by your spirit, make this possible. We give you all praise and thanks in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand.